0: From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me directly with questions or comments at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or 212-969-6655. This week is a listener request episode. A listener and client of mine reached out and wanted to understand more about financial planning and modeling in part because he was watching a number of TV commercials which talked about your number and how best to get the answer to your retirement question. So he reached out and said, I think this would be a really great episode for a podcast. So I've invited Tara Thompson-Popernick, the Director of Research in the Wealth Management Group at Bernstein, to discuss financial modeling. She oversees all aspects of wealth planning and financial modeling at Bernstein. Tara, thanks for joining.
1: Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here.
0: So I have a terribly basic question and I want to stay away from jargon as much as possible and not do a 20-minute episode on math. Um, What is financial modeling?
1: Sure. So financial modeling is really a catch-all term that can um, describe anything from, uh, at one end, a business that's just forecasting sales growth for the next 12 months, all the way to a very complicated strategy for an individual that can show them how a, a number of different trust and estate plans are going to work for them down the road. Um, that that's just financial modeling. What, what people, what individuals use it for and where it applies to individuals is really on determining how much do I need to retire and then what am I missing that can help me get to my goals either more efficiently or more quickly.
0: Is there a, a type of person, investor, client who is best suited to do this type of financial modeling?
1: Financial modeling is really important for every single person who wants to do something financially later on in their life.
0: Which right? would be kind of everyone, right? It's,
1: it's pretty much everyone, okay. okay? Either either you need to save money in order to ultimately retire or you're saving money towards a goal like funding college. Uh, financial modeling can be very important for you as you're trying to determine how you achieve those goals.
0: And so I would assume there are different levels or, or maybe levels of complication of financial modeling that require a different amount of time and effort forget from the person who's doing the modeling but from the investor who has to put in data and get get the assumptions for someone to actually model who should be doing the 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 more rudimentary where that would be just good enough for someone to understand okay here's how much i need to save to put my kids through college and then who's the type of person who should really be spending a reasonable amount of time not a week or a month but you know set aside an hour or two on their own or with their spouse to get a few data points to to help their financial analyst model their future? Are there different categories of people for how much work they should be doing?
1: Sure. So, so, look, most people could probably go into to either use an online calculator or there, there are certain apps. Um, are there online calculators there, that there do this? Are, yeah, there are some that do this. Not all are created equal. And, and this is one big point. So at Bernstein, we tried to go buy something off the shelf about 20 years ago. And we realized that um, for individuals, what we need to capture is a lot of nuance on the tax side and on the rebalancing side, and how a retirement pay plan pays out side.
0: So, so let's deconstruct those. So you said tax rebalancing and uh, and retirement in terms of IRAs and whatnot. So so let's start on the first one. Talk about wh- what is rebalancing and, and how does a model think about this?
1: Sure. So um, re- rebalancing is the act of maintaining a consistent asset allocation over time by selling your outperformers and then repurchasing your underperformers. So
0: if you say you're going to have an allocation or an investment strategy, half stock, half bonds, obviously you put that to work day one. It's not half stock, half bonds because markets move. Rebalancing keeps you in the model at that 50-50 going forward. Exactly. Got it.
1: But for a taxable investor, every time you rebalance, you are subject to tax.
0: Because you're selling something, assuming at a gain, you got to pay a tax. Correct. So this this connects to point two. So I, I guess part one is the models you looked at on the shelf didn't think about that rebalancing. Didn't
1: think about that rebalancing and maybe didn't capture some of the nuances on income versus appreciation. So if you have income in a portfolio, if it's taxable income, you have to pay that tax immediately. If you have appreciation in the portfolio, you don't always realize it all the time, right?
0: So you could make a lot of money owning Amazon, and, and never realizing that gain from a tax perspective. C-
1: correct. Unless you sell that position, you're not realizing that gain from a tax perspective. So- and, and you
0: can make money owning a utility for many years, but- But that's going to be a dividend, so you're going to be paying the tax.
1: Correct. So you have to have a model that's getting to some of these nuances in order to get results that you can really rely on. And so I think a lot of the commercially available stuff is very simple. They'll say, here's a return assumption for a specific risk allocation, uh, stock bond allocation, and... um, It will then take that return assumption and take your cash flows, whether that's savings or spending, and apply it to a portfolio and you'll come out with a number. If you want to get a little bit more granular, you have to have a more sophisticated model. And that's why we built our own.
0: Can that basic modeling be inaccurate? Does that matter? Does that rebalancing tax, all that stuff, does it matter?
1: So it's directionally accurate, right? I'm not going to tell some... It's never going to tell somebody that, you know, yes, you can afford to um, save only $1,000 a year and you'll be able to retire at age 40. That's not...
0: I like that model. I
1: I like that model too, but that's uh, something that does not exist in reality where we all live. Got it. So... Those models are never going to say something like that. They're going to give you something that's grounded in reality. But you have to pay attention to the assumptions, because as, as we've put out multiple times, and I'm sure your clients have heard about, uh, we don't think that investment returns going forward for the next 10 years are going to be as, result, as re- robust as the returns we had over the last 10 years. We've had double-digit stock returns for the last 10 years. And if your um, model is assuming that past performance is going to equal future returns, which some of them do, you're not going to get a great result.
0: So how does an off-the-shelf or an industry standard, and maybe you'll tell me those aren't the same or they are, think about assumptions going forward?
1: So there's a couple of ways we see this happen. Either they've taken all the historical returns, dumped them into a big bucket, and then they do something called Monte Carlo, which is just fancy for
0: randomization,
1: they randomize those historical returns over time. So, what so they you-
0: put in like a bingo ball exactly thing that um, some years the market was down forty, which it has been. Some years the market was up forty, which it has been, and they're just pulling bingo numbers
1: I- exactly. And yes, you're going to get the the randomization in that model, but what you're not going to get is any rationalization. In that model so you may have a a situation where inflation is four and bond yields are two well that's not really likely to happen or at least not likely to happen for very long right so um
0: so the stock randomization might might not be terrible but it would be odd to have a world where inflation was pick a number out of the ball hopper two and then in 2020 inflation is 11 hmm. That like that would be weird. That
1: would be weird. And
0: then the next year in 2021, the ballhopper pulls inflation at three. Correct. So you're telling me it's been two, it's been 11, it's been three. But I think we'd all agree that the 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 possibility of that happening is none three years in a row.
1: Right. You're probably going to have a path of return. Right. So it may go from two to three to five, to seven. It could get to 11, but it's going to take time because inflation is a variable that has a lot of persistence.
0: So, so now you have this complicated model term Monte Carlo that is pulling historical data, but it may not have your, your word, a, a, a rationale around what it's pulling.
1: Right. So so what we've developed is um, what we call our capital markets engine, which takes a look at all of these variables, develops equations that make these variables make rational sense and and Uh, captures the interrelations among them, and then using this building block approach gives a range of returns for various asset classes that are really grounded in reality. And if there is irrationality in the system, it ends up getting corrected over time.
0: So so the first building block would be
1: Inflation. Inflation's pr- inflation and G- global GDP growth are the first two things we start with.
0: And once you have that and you project out, well, I guess how many different versions of that would you project out?
1: So we're looking out um, 10,000 different inflationary paths over the course of, say, 50 years.
0: So, so you know inflation is not going to be that wildly different in all those 10,000 paths the, the next year. But right. then from there, you're building what would bond returns be on that scenario? What would stock returns be on that scenario? Correct. So this is trying to create realistic outcomes about what could happen in the future. I'm guessing, though, there's a range of very good to very bad.
1: Yeah, the range of very good, to very bad. Certain variables are very easy to predict in the short term, but very difficult to predict in the long term. Other variables are very easy um, are very difficult to predict in the short term, but very hard to predict in the long term. So um, inflation and bond, bond yields, relatively easy to predict within a range relatively is a key word there in the short term but over the long run you don't know what path you're going to be on long-term trajectory with stocks very hard to predict the direction of an individual stock on a day-to-day basis but over the long run stocks are ultimately companies and companies are in business to make money and if those companies make money over time their value should go up
0: so does it wind up with possibilities that are really good and really bad? Like, h- h- how do I frame that? And and I guess the rubber meets the road question is 10 years ago, two thousand eleven years ago, 2008 happens, which is historically terrible, right? A year for mm-hmm. the market. It's the financial crisis. Does, d- did models think about scenarios like that?
1: So our, our model had a 2008 style scenario in it. It was just a very low probability event, I mean, depending on your...
0: But it was in it. It
1: was in there. But depending on your asset allocation, it may have been in the bottom 100 trials of the 10,000 trials that we looked at. But it was
0: possible. It was
1: possible. It was just not probable.
0: Right. Fair. But I would still say in hindsight, people would say it's improbable that that happened, but it did happen. So if you look out those 10,000 trials and, and you look out 10, 20, 30 years, what winds up when you deconstruct the model being the biggest long term risk for investors? And I, and I guess I'd say retirees specifically.
1: So, for retirees specifically, the biggest long term risk we see is inflation. It's and, not 08. And no, it's, it's how your purchasing power relates to the growth of your portfolio and how quickly that purchasing power um, can erode when you get on an inflationary cycle. Look, when we look at our results over a a 30-year horizon or a 40-year horizon, what we're seeing is two things. One, either the investor outlives their assets, so they they live a very long life. That's good. Which is great, but the, the downside to that is you have to have enough money to sustain your lifestyle for a longer period than you may have expected.
0: So what's the model tell you you should do in that scenario? Have more stock, right? Yeah, you gotta get yeah, more return. You, you
1: have to have more return or spend loss. I mean, th- those are really the only variables and levers you have to pull at that point because you're not going to go back to the office at 97 years old. Well, so
0: that's an interesting point. What what in 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 the sim- I, I say simplistic. I don't I don't mean that in in a negative way, but in the in the standard modeling, what are the levers people can can play with in the model to achieve better results?
1: Right. So so the biggest levers you can play pet. The biggest levers you can play with if you're looking for simply funding your lifestyle are level of spending, your asset allocation, and at what point you retire.
0: What do you think the biggest one is, right? So so if I'm, well, I am working, not if I'm working, I'm working, this, this is work. Um, if, if we're working and you're thinking about retiring or you're thinking about retiring in the short term, is the Bigger level, you can pull asset allocation because if I can retire sooner, an asset allocation is going to bail me out, and I can live with some risk. I don't get to work; I don't have to work. That that may be really appealing to some people, or is, is spending like the most powerful lever you've got.
1: Spending is probably the most powerful lever you have closely followed by how long you're in the workforce, because every additional year that you're in the workforce and you're not drawing on your portfolio, that's giving that portfolio extra time to continue to generate return and build to a, a certain level um, that's going to sustain a given level of spending over time. Look, we solve for this all the time with clients. We, we call um, the amount of money that you need to fund your lifestyle for the rest of your life, that's core capital.
0: So core capital is the amount of money you need for the rest of your life. Does it assume that investors pass at 100 years old? Or like, how does it think about the rest of one's life?
1: So we actually mortality adjust that number based on your current um, age. So I would tell a 55-year-old person, you need a lot more core capital than I would tell an 85-year-old person. Life expectancy is longer. Exactly.
0: Does it make any uh, assumptions about increasing life expectancy or not?
1: So we're looking at mortality tables for high net worth individuals. Um, so we're adjusting upward what would be a standard mortality assumption by a few years because uh, high net worth individuals tend to live longer.
0: So it sounds like one of the, the big things that you would use financial modeling for or your model for is, is broadly defined as retirement planning or in retirement planning. What are some of the more nuanced or complicated things that one can test in a financial model. I'm guessing if you just go on the web, you can find a retirement calculator. But if you're doing more complicated, I don't know, state or charitable planning, what are some things that, that you can capture?
1: Sure. And I think one of the big differentiators of our model is that we've built in a tax and um, investment vehicle infrastructure that captures a lot of nuance on the estate planning side, the charitable planning side, and even the retirement planning side with various kinds of vehicles. Uh, You need to integrate all of these strategies in order to be able to see what happens to your entire pool of assets over your lifetime. So first and foremost, we'll often solve for core capital for an individual. So how much money do you need out of all of your assets in order to live your lifestyle? Then what are your secondary goals? Do you want to fund education for your kids? Do you want to leave a legacy to a particular philanthropic cause that you care about? And how do we build vehicles that will accomplish those goals for you? So, look, you may want to fund a trust um, that will benefit your children and possibly future grandchildren. How that trust is funded, how much you fund it with, and what that asset allocation of those assets are has bearing on your overall financial picture, especially if you're employing certain wealth transfer strategies that we use that that may need to outperform a particular rate or that you're paying the income taxes on a trust that is ultimately for your heirs, not for you. So things like this are um, super important to making some of these decisions and sizing and timing and, and how things are coming out.
0: On trusts, we work we work with and talk to a number of people who are beneficiaries of trusts or who have created trusts or, or are trustees of trusts that distribute money to someone currently and or will leave something to another beneficiary. Can the model think about the trade-offs of of how you take care of all the beneficiaries of the trust in, in some sort of equitable way?
1: Sure. So we do a lot of work in helping people find balance, whether that's balance in current spending versus legacy spending or um, current funding versus um, perpetual funding for a charity or for a trust getting down to current beneficiary who may be receiving income versus future beneficiaries who will receive the corpus.
0: And I'm guessing that, that could be... Um contentious. It doesn't have to be, but it could be because you have a dollar that two people want to claim on and how you split that evenly has got to be dependent on the investments.
1: It is absolutely dependent on the investments. Um, and there are some policies that the trustee can often put in place, whether it's um, a floor for the distribution or a ceiling for the distribution or converting a um, an income amount to some percentage of the portfolio, because we know given that bond yields are very low right now, the income beneficiary may be saying, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't seem fair anymore. Is there some way that we could convert this so that I'm getting a percentage of the trust, but I'm still not terribly disadvantaging the remainder beneficiary?
0: And you can model that out over 10, 20, 30 years with different asset allocations so that a trustee can sit with the beneficiaries and say, look, we don't know, but Here's what a thoughtful model tells us is most likely to give us an equitable split and have everyone as wealthy as possible over some time period.
1: Right. And it's really giving those trustees peace of mind that they've looked at the economics, taken the emotion out of it and, and seen in just raw numbers how this decision is going to impact the future.
0: Um, uh, n- another topic, maybe this is the last one, we're coming up on time here. As, as you think about people who have gone through a transaction, there's been a lot of IPOs. There's been a lot of um, you know companies that have done very well over the last, well, any period of time, but especially lately in the tech space. There are definitely a lot of people who have large single stock positions out there. Either they were given to them as an inheritance or they've um, built a business or been part of a business, been a corporate executive, and they have a large position. Can the model think about an individual stock position like it can? Uh, you talked about inflation and bonds and stock.
1: Yes. So so what we do is we take the individual characteristics of one um, single stock, what what that stock's dividend yield, what its beta to the broad market is, what its historical volatility has been. And, and we build a, an asset class that... Um, looks just like that single stock. It's not idiosyncratically that stock, and and maybe we're not capturing every single nuance, but we're going to directionally get the amount of volatility um, that's associated with holding one single position, and we can compare that to a more diversified portfolio. To to mention, look, a single stock can give you spectacular highs but also spectacular lows. And um, being able to see the trade-offs inherent in maybe diversifying, maybe using another vehicle, giving some of that stock to charity, um, doing something like an exchange fund. All of these things are, are part of our model and we can show a, a client what those trade-offs are.
0: And, and you can think about how to risk manage the rest of the portfolio outside the single stock in a complementary way to whatever that position. I, I'm assuming the, the level of risk management or the type of portfolio you'd build for someone who owns uh, just pick a stock Netflix versus someone who owns Con Ed might be entirely different.
1: C- completely.
0: I'm impressed. Well, Tara, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining to our listeners. Any questions on this or any other topic? I can be reached at bernstein or 212-969-6655. Make sure to like us on iTunes or wherever you catch this podcast. Until next time.